This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is a Business Radio special presentation after the blockchain bubble, focusing on the evolution of the technology and what it will look like in the future. Here's your host, Kevin Werbeck. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to hour two of our special on blockchain and cryptocurrencies here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. Again, I'm Kevin Werbeck, professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton and the author of the new book, The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. All right, let's head into our next hour. We've got uh, a number of additional fantastic guests uh, joining us. Next one is Tim Swanson, founder and director of research at Post Oak Labs. Uh, Before that, uh, has been a visiting research fellow at Singapore University of Social Sciences and Singapore Management University. And before that, uh, director of market research at R3, author of three books, Great Wall of Numbers, Great Chain of Numbers, and uh, The Anatomy of a Money-Like Informational Commodity, a study of Bitcoin. Uh, Another person who's been uh, in this space uh, for now quite some time and a very uh, perceptive observer. Uh, So, uh, Tim, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it. You've been, uh, for a while, a notable skeptic in the the cryptocurrency blockchain space. And so I I assume uh, right now you're probably spending a lot of time saying, yep, I told you so. (laughs) Uh, Victory Labs, unfortunately, aren't aren't part of my uh, current agenda. I'm uh, currently packing up. uh, My wife and I were moving up to a a different state as we speak, so I haven't had a chance to have some Schundelfreude. But yes, uh, it's been been, uh, a little fun in in the sense that uh, the predictions that a few of us made uh, have come true, uh, although you know, rubbing it in the salt into everyone's little wounds right now isn't probably going to win me any friends. So yeah. I, I'm yeah. trying not to trying to lay low a little bit on social media. So where do you think things went wrong? Obviously, there you know there was a bubble, there was there was hype, but but you know what led to the the real speculative frenzy of the last year? Well, yeah, I think there's several things. Um, one of them is uh, this this view that. Um, you're gonna, you're you're only buying these 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 coins because you think somebody else is going to buy them. Uh, so you have a both the the, was the, the greater fool theory going on, uh, and also you know this is something that Keynes looked into a number of times uh, during his study of bubbles. So the the phenomenon isn't new. It's just the instrument that was being bought is new, or in, in the sense that it wasn't around ten years ago. So um, I, I I think if you just couple that with um, people, people not knowing what to do with money, wanting quick yield. So we, we could go on from country to country with what happened in Korea and China, not just here in the U.S. But I, uh, just one small anecdote for listeners. Uh, last December, I had a, a classmate from grad school I hadn't spoken to in maybe 11, 12 years who called me up and said, hey, how do I get an account on, on Binance? And they, you know, they were very frustrated that they couldn't get... This is one of the, uh, one of the they, cryptocurrency exchanges. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so I was like, yeah. are, you, are you sure you really are wanting to get into this right now and you don't really understand you know, what private keys are? So anyways, um, I, I think that, that was, it was actually almost to the day. So I'm not saying that that was the indicator, but like the fact that people were not very tech savvy were getting involved in trying to buy this stuff, I think, uh, was kind of an indicator that there may have been <laughs> a bit more irrational exuberance than, than normal. So you're, you're, though, still actively involved in this larger world. You're not one of the, the people there's like Nurio um, Rubini at, at NYU saying the whole thing's a scam. It's all a fraud. What's the part that that you see as being real and and not pure hype in this larger blockchain world? Yeah, sure. So uh, my main client right now is a company called Clearmatics out in the UK. I've been an advisor for them for uh, a few years, and the things that they've been working on um, are on the central bank digital currency side. So I'm not here to promote a specific company or platform or anything like that. But uh, the ideas there are, hey, if if you're actually in in a world in which you're trying to share information, a shared ledger, shared assets, uh, shared records, um, having a uh, a chain, a blockchain, as it were, may be useful for that. And again, I'm not here to promote that, uh, you know, what, what. a specific platform is at this time, but uh, I, I do see some utility in, in the sense that if you're able to get a central bank to issue a digital currency on one of these platforms, then you don't have the credit risk you do of these you know, these fake stable coins that are out there. You know, so like several dozen of them that still create re- recreate the same intermediation and, and systemic risks uh, that you previously had uh, with commercial banks. So 
Um, I, I think that there could be some utility, but uh, that's going to be a long time coming if, if uh, central banks approve and try to issue these directly on a platform. Yeah. What would it take for a central bank to have the confidence in issuing a cryptocurrency? Because obviously, you go back to, to Bitcoin and much of the, the vision that excited the, at least the early community that was working on it, and a lot of the people in that world still today, is that it's an alternative to governments and central banks. Yeah, so I see those two worlds kind of just coexisting. Uh, it's not like I could convince the, the crypto anarchists to stop being crypto anarchists, and it's not like I could convince <laughs> the, the government to stop being the government. So, um, so, so as long as they both have funding, they'll, they'll coexist. Um, yeah, as far as what actual central banks will do, um, if, if readers are interested or listeners are interested, there's a, there's a paper published in March from the BIS um, on central bank digital currencies, and it has something called a money flower model, and it has eight different types of um, models for how they see um, kind of going forward, or as of right now, um, what represents money on, on a platform or even even you know, physically. Um, so rather than going through each one of those, I just recommend readers just type in, you know, CBDC paper March you know, 2018 into Google, and that, that paper should be one of the top entries. So the so um, Bank of International hard. Settlements, right, is BIS, yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah, the Bankers Bank, um, or Central Bankers uh, Bank. Um, but as far as like requirements and, and stuff, there's there's another there's another bit of reading that, and homework that listeners can do. It's, it's something called a, looking up something called the PFMIs, uh, Principles for Financial Market Infrastructures. And it was a, a 2012 is when this publication came out, and in it it outlines uh, you know a dozen plus uh, ideas and principles for um, how you should run and, and regulate and oversee um, infrastructure. And that's not something you know when, when Satoshi was putting together. Uh, Bitcoin back in 2007, 8, 9, uh, in, in those years, it, it's not like he sat down or she sat down or they uh, and, and tried to do checkoffs of, of what were then the, the precursors to PFMIs. So he, he wasn't, or uh, Satoshi wasn't trying to solve problems for regulated institutions. So I, I don't, I don't think that. That's, I'm not saying that your question's bad. It's just that the, when, when central banks sit around thinking how, how do CBDCs work, they don't, they don't say, hey, Satoshi's. So oh, sure. They solve this for us. Yeah. Sure. So uh, they have a set of different requirements. Um, and in fact, irreversibility and finality are, are, are some of those. Um, so there is a little intersection in the ideas. But the way you have, for example, uh, on Bitcoin or Ethereum with, with proof of work networks is you have uh, probabilistic finality. Um, there, you can never have 100% guarantee that a transaction won't be rolled back or reorganized. Whereas uh, platforms that um, central banks and, 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 and their you know, effectively correspondent. Um, members um, need is they have to have things like definitive legal settlement finality. So I know that sounds really boring. You'd have some lawyers, I'm sure, on the show that could kind of go into those issues. But uh, those are those are non-negotiable requirements. If you're going to run a, a payment system tied into the central bank, yeah. you have to have these guarantees. That's just one. <laughs> we could have a whole show about the others. Right. I guess the other side of the question, though, is what attracts central banks to issuing a, a digital currency or, or a cryptocurrency? Um, they all have the different motivations. So I certainly don't want to give anyone a broad, you know, sweeping brush. Um, some of some of the conversations involve, um, you know, th- this world in which they've bought into at least the vision that you'll have assets that are digitized um, that are uh, needed uh, instead of instead of tying in or plugging into the existing um, external financial system through Fedwire or whatever it might be. What if you had uh, a way of settling? Um, payments on chain uh, with these assets, uh, these whatever instruments that are being issued. Um, and the only way to really do that is to have cash on the ledger itself. And so you need to have a central bank actually issue that, or at least the equivalent of central bank uh, digital currency on there. So some of it is just from a practical standpoint, like, hey, we already have these digital assets out there that have been issued by uh, recognized regulated institutions. Let's find a way of uh, allowing for payments to take place. So that, that's part of the practical side. Um, there's other indi- um, other arguments for policy, for example, for for having um, below zero interest rates, and obviously um, <laughs> the cryptocurrency community would probably be up in arms about having uh, below zero uh, below the zero bound. Um, we're not going to obviously have time to go into that whole conversation here, but if there was a way in which the the whole money supply, uh, or at least a significant portion, was uh, digitized and actually maintained, not through the commercial banking you know credit issuance process, but through uh, central banks. Um, then you could effectively go below zero bound 
not not just like a quarter percent, but one or two or three percent. So it's a policy thing that comes up too. And again, I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm just saying that that's part of the conversation. You're listening to our special After the Blockchain Bubble with your host, Kevin Werbeck, currently speaking with Tim Swanson of Post Oak Labs. So, Tim, you were uh, one of the first people, or maybe, maybe the coiner of this uh, distinction three or so years ago, between permissioned and permissionless blockchains, the the permissionless being the the open networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and the permission ones being ones like we're talking about now for governments and, and enterprises. Today, do you think that that's still the right uh, cut to make? That's that's still the most useful distinction between the phenomena that are happening. Uh, yes and no. Um, so. Uh, this, this, for the listeners, uh, the, the actual history of that term was originally coined by a guy named Robert Sams, who founded Clearmatics, which I'm an advisor for, and I, okay. and I ended up writing a paper talking about other companies doing the same thing. Uh, and unfortunately, it got popularized to the point where <laughs> it, that, that wasn't my goal to, to, to popularize that term. I was trying to create a distinction around uh, validators, who, who, who validates transactions. In, in the Bitcoin world, it's really just you know, 15, 20 different tools in any given day. Uh, in a quote-unquote permission network, it, there's so many different platforms that have been pitched that it, you can't really say how many you know, validators would be on it. But the idea here is that you knew who the validators were. Uh, rather than uh, anon- anonymous non-KYC uh, participants. Um, so as far as going forward today, is that is that useful? Um, I actually think that there's slightly different terminology that we could start looking into, and that's uh, actually just reusing or re-looking at the words intermediation in the first place. If, if, you, if you don't, if you add or re-add intermediaries or you just reshuffle who the intermediaries are, you're really not changing market structure um, and you're not reducing risk. So rather than <laughs> going into the whole history of like CCPs, you know, these, these central uh, you know, clearinghouses and counterparties, um, it, it would be important for, for listeners just to, to, to look at the, the, the organizations and, and the, the ecosystems that they've been maybe um, wanting to develop in or invest in. Um, how, how, are those, how is that market structured? In, in with the cryptocurrency world, I would argue we, they've actually reinvented nearly every intermediary without any of the accountability that you would have from congressional oversight or anything like that. So that's obviously I just <laughs> opened up a big can of worms that we don't have time to go into. But um, I, I think that if, if we just look at intermediation and how that takes place today versus how it used to take place, um, what has changed? If nothing's changed, then are you can you really say that you know, a revolution is taking place? Maybe not. Um, so obviously <laughs> you're going to have other other speakers that uh, may have different opinions on that. So I'll just I'll put a pause on that. That's quite all right. So we've got to wrap up in, in less than a minute uh, to move on. But so the last question I have for you is, uh, 10 years from now, let's say, are we still going to be using words like like blockchain and cryptocurrencies to describe what's happening? Or, or will these technologies essentially fold into business and technology? Uh, I, I hope it's the latter, not the former. And, and this one, one anecdote on that, if, if you if you walk through uh, San Francisco airport, uh, there's a, a whole aisle of uh, old magazines from the 1930s called Radio, like that's the title of it. And I'm reminded of, whenever I see those, I'm reminded of internet conferences in the early 1990s, where it was like, hey, we're going to go to the internet conference. <laughs> so I, I really hope I hope this becomes a, an anachronistic term pretty quickly. All right, uh, we have to wrap up, but uh, Tim Swanson, thanks very much for joining me on the program. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. I am uh, thrilled to introduce our next guest, Caitlin Long. She's a 22-year veteran of Wall Street who's been active in Bitcoin and blockchain since 2012. Uh, she was uh, chairman and president of a uh, enterprise blockchain startup called uh, Symbiant. Uh, before that, ran Morgan Stanley's pension business. Uh, and more recently, uh, and I think we'll get into this some, um, has been uh, active in leading the Wyoming Blockchain Coalition uh, in its efforts that has successfully enacted a number of blockchain and crypto-friendly bills in the state of Wyoming. So, uh, Caitlin, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. And hey, I want to congratulate you on your daughter winning a gold medal over the weekend. I'm so proud of her. I am too. Yes, my daughter qualified for the Junior Olympics in fencing uh, as uh, under 17. So uh, yeah, very thrilled about that. Thank you. Um, so, so you and I go. We were in law school together uh, ages ago, and uh, then you went off to Wall Street. Um, tell us the story about how you got into uh, the the crypto world, and and also what what keeps you in that world as things have evolved. Well, I spotted Bitcoin relatively early on through alternative economic circles. I was working full time on Wall Street, as you said, um, at the time, and <laughs> had to keep my head down, uh, but gradually felt confident enough 
to pop up uh, at, when I started to see that it may have real application to my day job in the traditional financial industry. I've evolved away from that, though, um, and it was interesting. I caught the end of your conversation with Tim Swanson. I, I really do believe that a parallel financial system is going to uh, going to evolve here, and, and it's not going to be changed from within. And we can get into examples of that, but, but uh, I kind of gave up on trying to change the system from within mm-hmm. uh, and am looking at, at ways that this technology can actually solve real problems using it natively as opposed to trying to plug it into architecture that is just not designed to take this technology. So say a little bit more about that. Well, the thought here is that this technology is so different fundamentally than the traditional centralized databases that are so ubiquitous in the financial industry and all the intermediaries that have been set up in in the financial industry. And therefore, it really is sort of an either or. And it took me a while to come to that conclusion. I, like so many others, took the path through the through the so-called blockchain, not Bitcoin uh, 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 way of, of navigating throughout the industry. And I do think that there will be blockchain applications that are not Bitcoin that will succeed. Um, but I just was reading an article that came out today about the uh, SEC chairman's statements regarding proxy voting. And there was a quotation from the head of the Council of Institutional Investors talking about deploying blockchain with a new kind of intermediary that would be a gatekeeper for proxy voting. And I thought to myself, gosh, just the words intermediary and gatekeeper are really not not, um, accurate when describing this technology. So using the word blockchain is almost more of a marketing tool. Clearly what he had in mind was something better than what we have today, which especially for proxy voting, the bar's pretty low to come up with something better than what we have today. But um, but it's not real blockchain, and, and I think it just gets, that's that's just one of many examples we can point to that that suggests that the incumbent system is going to be way too slow to change and way too resistant to change, and the 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 true blockchain based solutions are just going to outflank it. They're going to come around from left field and and just come up with something better. One of the aspects that you've written about uh, is the difference between a, an equity-based and a debt-based financial system and, and the, the fact that these crypto assets, because they are native digital and they're, and they're true bearer assets, potentially are, are just a fundamentally different foundation that, that potentially is, is more secure for the financial system. Could you just explain that a little bit and then also the, the concern that the traditional uh, financial actors are now trying to pull that system back into the uh, the existing debt-based approach. Exactly. And, and actually, that's a really astute question because it does get at the heart of why blockchain is not really easy to plug into the existing system. Everything in the traditional financial world is a debt-based asset. In other words, it's it's a counterparty asset. There's a there's an IOU. There's an issuer behind it, and the mind bender on that is pull pull a dollar bill out of your wallet if you if you still carry cash and look at it and, and realize that that's a Federal Reserve note. It's an IOU from a bank called the Federal Reserve, and it's what we use as money. But in history, the concept of debt based money is relatively new, and and history shows that. Uh, that, that whatever is used as money is, is, is only as, as solid as the foundation upon which it's built. And one of the things I do believe is fundamentally superior about natively blockchain assets is that they are, there is no IOU, there is no issuer, so there's no counterparty risk. And it turns out in the traditional system, that's a huge issue. The fact that it takes us two days to settle a securities trade means that if your broker dealer goes bust in the two days between the time you gave your broker your money and the two days later you receive the securities from them, if they go bust, you're a general creditor of a bankrupt institution and you're not going to get your money back. Those sorts of things are very real and and that is risk that need not otherwise exist. And in the blockchain-based world, it those risks do not exist. 
and therefore we can have true peer-to-peer transactions taking place without these exogenous risks that are a function of the tech and regulatory debt cruft is a word that the developers <laughs> like to use um, that 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 you know really is a noose around our necks and, and one of the most interesting things I learned this year is that in emerging markets where that have a history of high inflation they don't have really any time in 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 between settling a securities transaction and the reason is that inflation inflates away the value of the of the cash leg of a securities purchase and therefore those markets with the history of high inflation have same day settlement of securities trades i think at some point the the western world whose systems are so dependent upon these slow cash and security settlement um you know systems are are, are ultimately going to pay a dear price for that well, but why then do uh, is there so much pressure to pull the the blockchain technology back into this existing approach? Well, it, it is it, going back to the uh, article we talked about earlier today, talking about improving the the proxy voting system. There are huge problems with the status quo system. Nobody really likes to talk about them, but there that there is a tremendous amount of counterparty risk and, of course, cost um, in, in the delays that it takes to settle transactions. And most folks don't even understand that. Um, I think even the way that we own securities, most folks, if we ask your listeners, how many of you own securities, pretty much everybody <laughs> would have their hands up right now. And the honest truth is, unless you actually own the paper stock certificate, you really don't own your securities. What you own instead it's something legally classified as a security entitlement. It's an IOU from your broker-dealer. And your broker-dealer owns an IOU from their custodian who owns an IOU from their custodian, which is the legal owner of the securities. That's where the title of 99.9% of the securities rests in U.S. markets. I bet you, you know, only 1% of your listeners probably understood that. And, and that's the way securities ownership works. It's a vestige of history. And it doesn't need to be that way anymore. The technology issues that caused us to put these intermediaries in place that allowed the netting of securities transactions, so you didn't physically have to move the paper stock certificates around so much, that, that, uh, that was all put in place about 40 years ago. But long since, the technology issue, issues that required that as the solution went away. And why haven't we gotten rid of that? It's because there are players in the ecosystem who benefit from keeping that old, slow system in place. We don't have too much time left, so I want to ask you uh, to talk about what you're doing in Wyoming. Uh, first of all, we, why, why does uh, the legislation passed in a small state matter in this global blockchain phenomenon? And, and what are some highlights of the legislation that uh, you've been able to help get through? Yeah, sure. Thank you. It actually relates to the answer that I just gave to your prior question, and that is there are not incumbents with a vested interest in keeping the existing system in place in the state of Wyoming, like we discovered that there are in places like Delaware, for example, where you've got a lot of these of these infrastructure players who don't have an interest in seeing the system change. And Wyoming is a, a, a state that historically has had a, a, a a great ethos that relates to the blockchain industry ethos, individual responsibility, low taxes. Um, and it's also the place where the limited liability company corporate form, and I guess corporate would be the wrong word, but company form was invented in 1977. Um, most LLCs are, are, of course, formed in Delaware. But in fact, actually, Wyoming is the place that invented them. And Wyoming is the number three state for new business registrations. So we have a great foundation upon which to build. And what Wyoming is doing, it's my native state, what we're doing is literally building a regulatory infrastructure to welcome and enable the industry. And it's, uh, it's much more industry friendly than, say, the New York regulations, which have been very restrictive. Wyoming is taking a very enabling approach to the regulations. And we're seeing a lot of businesses start to form there and, and, in, and some of them even starting to move there solving a lot of the problems that, that have plagued the industry. Most recently, um, we have a bill that's moving in, in the legislative session that will form a blockchain-friendly bank. 
this is deemed one of the high-risk industries by the FDIC, and that means most banks don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And even the Industry Trade Association, which was not even touching cryptocurrencies, lost its bank account because the compliance officer said, oh, we don't want to do anything in the, in the cryptocurrency industry. So that has caused a real um, you know, clampdown on innovation. And it's unfortunate for the United States, but that's the reality that the banking system just doesn't want to bank these companies, even if they're not touching cryptocurrencies directly. So we're trying so, to solve that problem in Wyoming. Yeah. So what exactly does a blockchain bank mean? Uh, well, it's just a bank that's going to have a specialty in banking this industry. It means it's going to have a lot of compliance officers who will specialize in banking this industry. It's a legal industry. It's just deemed a high-risk industry. So your average bank on your on the on the corner of your town street isn't necessarily going to want to touch that because if they have a footfall from a compliance perspective, they actually might lose their bank charter. And they can't afford to do that. So we've seen this in a lot of other industries. The blockchain industry is not the only one. But it, when, when the trade association couldn't even get a bank account, that tells you how extreme it, the, the, the banks have gotten on this issue. And we're going to have to wrap up in, in just a minute. But um, how do you see things evolving then? I mean, there's, there's you know, one model where you've got I mean, globally – Small um, jurisdictions, uh, you know, Cayman Islands, Gibraltar, Malta, and so forth, which, which historically try to create welcoming environments that, that often are for you know some industries like the the gambling industry that are that are legal but not available everywhere and bring capital in there. And then there's a, a model where you have jurisdictions that go out in front, and then uh, other larger jurisdictions then say, "Well, no, this this makes sense, and, and we need to move our regulation in the same direction." Um, obviously, as you said, you're you're from Wyoming and really trying to you know, promote capital formation and economic development there. But you know, do, do you see uh, you know, Wyoming really taking off? Uh, and and if so, do you think that other states and the U.S. government will will follow with these similar kinds of laws? Yeah, I do see it taking off uh, in part because a lot of folks would prefer to be in the United States legal system, and so what we're doing is creating a legal foundation that clarifies. It, it's amazing, Kevin, yet you, thinking back to our law school days, <laughs> um, nobody actually really knows how crypto assets are going to be treated in bankruptcy. And the whole concept of what if a judge applies uh, an automatic stay in bankruptcy? How, does it, how is a crypto asset handled in that situation? Those are pretty basic fundamental questions for um, getting security tokens clarified under the law, getting stable coins clarified under the law. These are sorts of these are the sort of things that are sort of hybrid instruments that that settle on crypto rails, but but are going to be accepted and invested in by your pension fund manager and your mutual fund manager someday. Well, we've got to get the legal foundations right first, and they're not there yet. And one of the biggest reasons is we don't know what the treatment of those assets is in bankruptcy. And so watch out because stay tuned. Wyoming's Wyoming's going to be doing a lot of things that will advance this ball. And just by nature of being first, that, that's, we think, going to attract a, a lot of folks. I, I will say, you know, anything can happen in a legislative session. But uh, if, if we pull off what we've pulled off, not all of which you know, what we plan to pull off, not all of which is public yet, I think a lot of your listeners are going to be saying, wow, about the state of Wyoming. It, it truly is is going to be the first to enable this industry from a legal perspective so that we can build the, the, the next generation of businesses on top of it. All right. We'll keep an eye on it. Caitlin Long, thank you so much for joining me on the show. My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks so much. Uh, I didn't intend it this way, but uh, we're now into lawyer hour uh, in that uh, the last guest all are lawyers, although coming at it from very different uh, angles. Uh, and uh, my next guest is actually the only one who is, uh, like me, uh, a legal scholar that's involved in this area. So I'm delighted to welcome her to the show. Uh, she is Tanya Evans, professor of law at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. Her expertise includes intellectual property, new technologies, entrepreneurship, entertainment, trust in estates, and municipal finance. Uh, and like me, she's been uh, not only writing about this area, but uh, working on developing uh, courses related to blockchain technology. So uh, delighted, uh, Tanya, to have you with us on the show. 
Thanks so much, Kevin. I'm really happy to join you today and all of the guests. This is a fantastic show, and although I'm biased, uh, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us your story. Um, I'm curious, given the areas of expertise that you have, which are not coming from uh, necessarily uh, securities law or or some of the uh, other areas that that get people into the, the crypto space, what got you excited about this? It's a great question. I know that we all have our own kind of rabbit hole moments. And uh, I've spent about the last 18 months completely and totally immersed, first personally, just being interested as uh, I call myself tech adjacent. So I grew up as my mom's a patent attorney, my dad's a doctor, and I was very creative and very athletic. Uh, And so I've kind of stumbled into a complete love and adoration for the legal implications of technology, and that's what I actually spend most of my time uh, writing, speaking, and teaching about. Uh, A friend of mine was working in um, a blockchain group and kept talking about all the things that she was involved in, and I kind of wanted to kick the tires from a cryptocurrency point of view, and then everything that I see in the world, uh, I reflect back to what does it mean for my students, what does it mean in terms of educating the next wave of lawyers. And in order to be able to do that and knowing how um, interdisciplinary uh, distributed ledger technology, blockchain technology is, that we all, regardless of the discipline or the area that we focus on as educators, we have to be mindful of the implications of it in a particular field. My field, my primary field is intellectual property, uh, copyright in particular. Uh, And then one bit of information led to 10 YouTube videos that led to 15 articles that led to me talking about it day and night. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak out in Bangkok, uh, helping to educate some attorneys out there about basically blockchain 101. And each presentation led to um, 100,000 miles later, literally this year, uh, I've been speaking everywhere uh, really about the implications uh, in IP, but also educating educators about blockchain. And how does IP, in your view, and and copyright come together with blockchain? Because the underlying um, technology or the the software code is capable of being copyright protected and also protected via patent law, it's important for people to understand the uh, intellectual property implications. Much of it is open source and necessarily so because of the issues of interoperability. And that's when we're building that uh, initial layer, it's critically important. Uh, But then you have that middle layer and people start to build out what is proprietary. And even at the, uh, the, the more fundamental or layer one, there are certainly projects out there that uh, move forward with the uh, intention of, of having proprietary interest in their foundation. Uh, But the nature of software uh, requires at some level that it be open source. The question becomes when you have someone building a decentralized app or some other, um, you know, BAS or some other service and they have the intention of um, asserting some proprietary interest, whether that's possible given the uh, quid pro quo, if you will, about the, uh, uh, the various licenses that says you are allowed to use this as long as you keep it open. So what is the bridge? I get a lot of calls about the bridge between that open source um, Mm. uh, beginning of most iterations of of the various blockchains and what happens when someone wants to bridge the the divide from a proprietary aspect. Uh, There's something that comes up on the trademark side as well. I don't have any answers to it, but the question, particularly from newbies and novices that enter the space, uh, the consequences of not knowing whether you are attempting to transfer um, Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or yeah. the various iterations of Bcash. Now, what that means, and once you've done it, you've lost it. Uh, but nobody's out there. Well, there are plenty of people out there registering trademarks, but none <laughs> really that uh, um, has any control over the likelihood of confusion, let alone actual confusion that happens in the space. And so those are some concerns as well. Yeah, it's fascinating examples of of the conflict between legal structures that just assume centralization just because you've got to attribute ownership uh, somewhere and and these structures that are decentralized. Right. Correct. Correct. So Uh, and that has I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. So I wanted to ask about the the other aspect that, as I said, you're, as I understand, developing a a certificate program in this area and and, ask you, you know, why why you think students should study this field, given, first of all, how fast changing it is. And second of all, 
the the persistent questions about well is this just just a fad this was just a bubble it's all going to go away yeah i think it's it's definitely here to stay and even if it were to go away this is where we are now and so i want my students both the on the jd side and uh our certificate program at at unh law is online and it's non-jd so the ideal uh, candidate or participant would be someone who's already an attorney or in finance or in education or some other area and needs to know more. Uh, it's also for business people who have to ask the question because, of course, not every <laughs> database structure needs to transition to some type of distributed system, uh, but they need to be able to have that conversation. They have customers. They have clients. And so the idea is, and also everybody's not going to come to lovely New Hampshire. I don't know why, but <laughs> it's we have to prepare ourselves for the possibility. This time of year so especially, wanted, right. <laughs> right. This time of year especially. So to be able to create this suite of courses, of what are the core ideas we have? Uh, I teach blockchain and the law, the survey course. We have crypto economics and blockchain governance by uh, Tom Doty. We have token economics and crypto regulations uh, by uh, Maureen um, Marat and, and Samson Williams data security and privacy, which is extremely popular. The enrollment is very, very impressive, Jason Civilari, and then a bunch of electives. And we feel like that would be the core component, both on the non-JD side, my students can certainly take it as well, but you have to be prepared, not just for now, but for the future, and to be able to have those conversations. Um, the practice of law, as you know, part of the competency is in technological competencies as well. So it's critically important for law, uh, law students uh, in particular. Yeah, what what gets the the law students or or the practitioners today interested in feeling like this is something that I need to develop expertise on? When I think of the uh, sweet spot of who's going to be most marketable, I think of someone who has a ground a solid grounding in the law, but also can see the business aspects. We kind of mentioned that a bit with the IP. That you know, there's the law, as you know, and then there's the business implication, and they don't always meet. You have to be able to have that conversation. I'm participating um, in the IP working group uh, for the Accord project, not the uh, main part of the project, but IP attorneys kicking around, what are the contracts we use? How can we reduce some parts of these, the objective parts, to ones and zeros and smart contracts? I need my students to be able to participate in that, and they're going to be highly marketable and add value because at the end of the day, they're problem solvers. And they need to be able to anticipate the problems and be um, situated uh, in order to solve them. Have you seen a change in, in interest or attitude uh, over the past year as uh, we've gone into this bear market for cryptocurrencies? It's a great question. And I also I love the fact that you've titled this the blockchain bubble and not the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency bubble, because that is an interesting part of it, right? That there are these, there's this bust and boom, not only on the crypto side, but also for development and building, although I see a lot of building still going forward. I think it's the real hardcore people are still at it doing what needs to be done. Uh, but I haven't, see, um, I haven't seen a slow of enthusiasm for what it is. Mike, the questions are more on the blockchain side than on the cryptocurrency side, or is it time to get in? I'm not a financial advisor at all, but people are still very curious. Uh, and so that still makes it exciting uh, uh, from a blockchain perspective and from an educator's perspective. And how do you see things going from here? Do, you know, what are what are some of the the key um, additional legal issues that you think we're, we're going to need to wrestle with uh, in the next couple of years? I know Marco's coming up some, and <laughs> his uh, area is where it's really most interesting. Um, I think the out, outside of and apart from the obvious uh, regulatory issues and concerns, particularly here in the states, but uh, everywhere. Uh, given the, nat the borderless nature of the technology, uh, when we're going to continue to see enforcement, uh, I, it sounds like we also have guidance from the SEC, CFTC, other uh, branches as there's kind of this um, jockeying for position of uh, regulatory issues. I see, uh, particularly in my area, uh, governments taking a, a, a harder look at uh, reducing inefficiencies in the delivery of governmental services. I just presented at Blockland in Cleveland, and Cleveland is doing some amazing yeah. work. Uh, I was really, really excited about the level of enthusiasm and engagement uh, 
private, public uh, educators coming to the table. And so I see governments moving to um, move property records and death and birth certificates and things of that nature. Um, on the education side, there are a lot of inefficiencies that we could solve for as well. So for, for our um, certificate program, we're looking to issue our uh, transcripts on chain and verification awesome. on chain. So we want to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk and really integrate technology in that way as well. Awesome. Well, unfortunately, we have to move on. This has been great, and I was really uh, uh, pl pleased to have you on the show. Uh, Tanya Evans from the University of New Hampshire School of Law, thanks again for joining us uh, on the program. Thanks so much. Delighted to welcome my last guest on the show, Marco Santori, President and Chief Legal Officer of Blockchain, the world's largest cryptocurrency wallet provider, uh, formerly uh, known as the Dean of Blockchain Lawyers um, uh, from his time at uh, Cooley and Pillsbury Winthrop. Uh, one of the um, leading figures in the legal profession uh, working with companies uh, in the blockchain space. Uh, and so, Marco, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, you know, last year uh, you left uh, the law firm world to go in-house, uh, and uh, it's obviously been an eventful time. I guess there, there's never been a non-eventful time in the crypto space, but um, uh, what's your experience been like in that time? Uh, i got to tell you, it's been great. Um, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to join something that's, that's going to touch the lives of, of everybody on the planet. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people who felt this way sometime around 1998, 1999, when it became, um, it started to become obvious to a lot of people that the internet was going to change the way people live. Um, and I think, <laughs> I know that there were a lot of lawyers that made their way out of a uh, big firm, uh, cushy law, legal practice to the company side and took a little bit of a risk uh, and never looked back. So, I uh, I feel like I feel like that's 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 the path here for crypto. Yeah, although I mean I remember some of my friends from law school who did that, uh, you know, and people consulting firms very late in the dot com bubble years, and then the the that crash came uh, in two thousand two, and uh, a lot of them left. They didn't go back. They they went back to the the safety of their um, their previous industries. Do you see any of that happening now in the blockchain space? I don't really, but I'm I'm curious your perspective. Yeah, I, I can I can confirm your uh, I can confirm your observation. I feel like most of the people that end up leaving the institutional side and going to um, going to the 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 side that's really building that's really building the stuff and not and not just reacting to it. I feel like most of those people end up staying because they're true believers. Um, and it took, you know, true, true. It took a true believer to leave this place, um, because yeah, there are risks. There are risks on a, you know, on a personal and a, and a career level that everybody, I think everybody sees when when they leave the cushy institutional nest and find their way into into the company side, um, into the more experimental side. But um, I got to tell you, so far I haven't seen a whole lot of people go back. And, you know, you were, as I said, very involved with the whole uh, ICO uh, gold rush that, that happened last year, not not as a, a promoter of the, the gold rush per se, but uh, as a legal advisor to, to some of the most prominent projects that were using that uh, model. And, you know, now we've seen regulators start to get a lot more active and, and lots of concerns about the, the legitimacy of the whole space. Um, so, you know, from the perspective of today, um, you know, where do you think things went wrong, or, or is it wrong to say that things went wrong? Well, I actually didn't. Um, I actually was involved in that. Um, I didn't. I didn't do. Uh, I didn't advise on on many ICOs at all. In fact, as I as I as I sit here today, I can't I can't think of a pre functional token sale that um, I advised on, except to say, don't do it. Um, <laughs> I can I actually I can I can think of one and there were very good reasons for why that thing was that that sale was probably not an illegal sale of securities but um no my involvement in the in the token sale space uh was mostly as a self-regulatory reactionary measure to ICO saying look these things are probably not only suboptimal but um they they violate the spirit and the letter of the law in fact I wrote 
um, I, I co-authored um, a paper on it called the SAFT Project White Paper that's been widely credited um, <laughs> for better or for worse, helping to destroy the ICO market. Um, and so, so yeah, I guess I guess I would I would I would recharacterize the way, the way that you put it. I think that um, I think that ICOs really um, were this incredibly um, experimental time in uh, in crypto, and it helped to unleash quite a bit of creativity and economic power. But uh, you know, my position on it was that they they probably did it in the wrong way. Okay, and I, I don't want to get too far in the weeds. I was, was certainly not trying to, to mischaracterize what you did, but um, you, you're you're defining ICOs as the you know, pre-functional sale of a token before there's any network built out without complying with the securities law. So maybe as for, for listeners who aren't familiar with this, what exactly did the SAF do, and how is that different from the, the ICO model that you're talking about? Yeah, I see. You know, for an ICO, you'd, you'd have a white paper and a file, and you'd pre-sell a token that didn't really do anything besides trade on an exchange, take in millions of dollars and use that money to develop a functional network. Um, the SAF project white paper called that out as something that was that was probably illegal and, and, and suboptimal from a business and economics perspective and, and proposed another model, the, the SAF framework, the Simple Agreement for Future Token, which um, was a, just a document. Says, look, if you if you don't have a, a working a working piece of technology and you're selling bits and pieces of it to people who are buying it for uh, you know for the for for capital appreciation purposes, they're buying it to speculate to make money. There's nothing wrong with that, but you should probably be following the securities laws. And then once 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 the thing works, once once the tokens are actually able to be put to their intended purpose, and you've fulfilled the promises that you made in your in your white paper and your uh, your Telegram chat group and your banner ads for, for those that chose to run them. At that point, the thing is really more of a functional commercial good, um, and the securities laws aren't the right laws to apply. At that point, you're probably not selling a security. And you know, about a month after we published that paper, there were, there really were no more pre-functional tokens sales in the United States. Um, and there. I, I got to tell you, I, I don't think there have been any since. Um, so the SAFT framework has mostly mostly taken over the the, the, the pre-sale of utility tokens. And uh, you know, as I noted, the, there have been a number of uh, enforcement actions by the SEC and other regulators of some of these projects that were not complying with the securities laws. Do, do you think the regulators have been too aggressive or, or not aggressive enough? No, I. I think that by and large we've um, we've had <laughs> the wrong regulatory balance, and that it's not that we haven't that, that the regulators have been too aggressive or not aggressive enough. I, I feel like we haven't had the right mix of regulators. A lot of these things are just consumer goods, where the seller lied to the purchaser about or materially misled the purchaser about what they were going to do and and how they were going to use the money and and all that stuff. And for a lot of under a lot of those circumstances, the SEC, the, the Securities Exchange Commission, the Securities, the Securities Exchange Commission, the regulator that is responsible for protecting investors, is right to step in and is right to be aggressive. Um, but in a lot of these enforcement actions, what we've seen is this sort of torturous winding to try to gain jurisdiction over um, over some of the uh, over some of the defendants here and over some of the circumstances. When really, probably the simpler, just just from a purely academic perspective, uh, prob- the simpler approach would have just been for the FTC, the Trade Commission, come in and say, "Look, this is this is a good in commerce. You lied, and you committed fraud. This is regular old common law fraud. It doesn't have to be securities fraud. Um, and we can still have regulatory activity. We we still could have had bad people going." Uh, bad people getting punished. We still could have had uh, risks being uh, being controlled for, uh, but without a lot of the regulatory uncertainty now that um, has fallen onto entrepreneurs who are trying to launch new token projects, it, it could have been as 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 simple um, as finding the right regulator uh, mm-hmm. for these things. 
but of course, <laughs> hindsight is uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. And yeah. I think that the regulators, for what it's worth, have done a tremendous job of trying to balance things. Unfortunately, we, we've got to wrap up soon as we have a hard break at the end of the hour. So I wanted to ask you one more question going back to what you're doing now at, at Blockchain. Um, you, I've heard you say that um, most of your wallets are outside the U.S. And, and curious, you know, for listeners that are here, what is it that people least understand about the different manifestations of cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain in other countries? Um, I think that what I, I think the biggest misconception um, actually is between the the two worlds. So, um, in the Western world and the Northern Hemisphere, where Money, generally speaking, is good, and people, generally speaking, still trust trust their banks even after the events of 2008. Um, people believe that cryptocurrencies are mostly just for speculating, for turning your dollars or pounds or euros into more dollars and pounds or euros. And, and by and large, that is how a lot of people um, in this part of the world use cryptocurrencies. But our users are primarily not in this part of the world. We have, you know, for a, for a month there, we had more signups in Kenya than we had in Texas. Um, the people use blockchain; they use our software, um, not to speculate, but to survive because their local currencies are not that good, um, because their payment systems are not that good, and because their banks are not that reliable, because their governments are not that reliable. This is one of the early use cases of Bitcoin. It persists. Yep. People people still yep. still use it to live. And so, you know, blockchains, blockchain is is, is not um, not a speculative platform. All right. So uh, I, I unfortunately, so the... yeah, I need to cut you off there. I'm sorry because we have a hard break at the end of the hour. Um, and sorry we don't have more time. But uh, I just want to thank you, Marco Santori, for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. And that's actually a good way to end um, because there is still real potential, I think, in this space. That's why I wrote a book called Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust uh, on the uh, the manifestations of this technology. And I think it will continue to be exciting into the future. So we have to wrap up, but let me thank all of my fantastic guests on the show. And thank you all for listening to After the Blockchain Bubble. This is Kevin Werbeck, and you've been listening to Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.